there. You're listening to Composer Code. I'm your host, Matt, and this is the podcast dedicated to helping you figure out how to become a better video game composer. In this episode, I chat with prominent YouTube creator and educator, 12Tone. You guys know him. He's amazing. He makes these awesome handwritten videos from a top-down handwritten perspective, teaching music theory concepts. He also has this new series where he analyzes and breaks down how some of the best songs work through the lens of music theory. Now, he's not a video game composer per se, but he's one of my favorite YouTube content creators, and it's my show, so I can have him on. Uh, No, but he's a really sharp guy, he's a really nice guy, and a lot of the takeaways uh, will be applicable to creatives of all stripes. As of this recording, he's got 165,000 YouTube subscribers and counting. We chat about his successes and failures making a living on the online platforms like YouTube and Patreon. We also talk about how to deal with criticism. It's a big one. The liberating power of rigid routines and the almighty deadline. That seems to be a recurring theme on the show. He walks me through how he schedules his week for optimal creative energy and the origin story of the elephant drawings and the gummy bears. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, check out his channel and uh, come back here. You'll understand. Anyway, I guarantee you will come away with something to implement in your own workflow. He goes so deep and adds so much value. So please enjoy this conversation with 12 Tone. And I was like, okay, then what am I going to be? And I started seeing like, oh, I can do math that is also art. And I can sort of look at these formulas that make beauty. And I guess that that's really what captured me about music theory. And I guess I did it more and more. I got more and more into that idea. And I think, honestly, the way I got into doing YouTube is just I had a bunch of free time after I graduated Mm -hmm. because I had been sort of looking to get into teaching uh that was sort of what i was aiming to do was sort of like work i was actually trying to apply to get like maybe into the sub pool at the college i went to Mm -hmm. and at that time they had decided they were not gonna stop like hiring recent graduates and try and focus on getting people out into the world which is a totally reasonable philosophy but it meant that the job that i had been trying to get and line myself up for they had decided they weren't going to even look at me so i had to figure out what i was going to do and i had a bunch of time and it was like you know what I really like educational YouTube. I'm really, I really like the idea of making education that doesn't, or educational materials that don't cost anything that Mm -hmm. sort of per you, obviously, you know, you have to have an internet connection, but you can get that in a library. And beyond that, you can, anyone can access it and it's sort of democratized. And that, that's sort of really interesting to me. And I wanted to be a part of that. And I was like, what, what can I do? What do I know? And what I know is music theory. What Mm -hmm. I was really good at in college was music theory. I was sort of the unofficial music theory tutor for my entire class. Like people would call me the night before an assignment was due and be like, Corey, what's going on? How do I do this? Mm -hmm. And so I sort of started, I think if you look at my early work, it's very much in that vein of like the stuff you would learn in an undergraduate theory course. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like a study guide and, you know, eventually you run out of that stuff and that was when i started really looking into like other things like um like other kinds of theory neo-riemannian theory like the history of theory um like all sorts of things and that sort of led to i guess the evolution to where my channel is today of just like finding cool things that i think are interesting and just talking about them so yeah i guess that's a meandering version of how i got to where i am but I got to where I am by meandering. So, you know, I like that. That's really great. And I love <laughs> uh, the encapsulation of music theory as math that also makes art or uh, or something like uh, along those yeah. lines that you just said. I, I really like that. Now, what's interesting to me, what's most interesting to me is is when you talk about how you were uh, uh, you were wanting to be a metal singer, because when I when I watch your channel, the, the furthest genre that I think of is metal. So my question, I guess, is as you were exploring these these concepts of music theory, did your uh, your listening habits change? Did kind of the music that you were influenced by change? Because um, it seems like, and I and I don't know this for sure, but I get the vibe that you uh, approach it from a classical perspective. I, I could be wrong in that, but um, did your influences change, or your, the kind of what you listened to change as you began studying music theory? Um, you know, what happened to your influences? So what I've found is that these set of the kinds of music I can appreciate, I don't know that they changed, but they grew. Like I sort of, I can listen to jazz songs and really understand what's happening. And I can sort of 
respect that. But the stuff that I listen to when I just want to listen to music for fun, that's a lot of that is still the same stuff I listened to in high school. That's still Rob Zombie. That's still like Jethro Tull. That's still like those sorts of bands that like, because that's, I don't know. I I think that I, I definitely approach things more from a partly classical, partly jazz background because that's where a lot of this really serious, like, academic exploration of harmony and of composition comes from mm-hmm. in modern Western culture is mainly the those two styles trying to understand them. Right. Uh, and then sort of spreading those ideas outward. Sure. And so I, I, I think that metal especially is often really hard to understand through those lenses because it is it is very different. The way that it approaches music, the way that it thinks about music is not jazz like it's not classical like it's very different and so i if you look at for instance the songs that i tend to analyze those are often you know often like classic rock hard rock songs but like i still i think those ideas kind of come from i guess a lot of that sort of jazz harmony still so having that understanding that background isn't it's not like you know if you listen to Nirvana it's like oh Nirvana is basically Dizzy Gillespie they're yeah you know, they're pretty much the same musician mm-hmm. they, they're not obviously but it's you know you can sort of take the ideas that you use to understand jazz and say how has that evolved into things that bands like Nirvana are doing and I think you can sort of do that with metal too I think that gets a little harder just because metal is I don't know metal is more different I think than a lot of rock music mm-hmm. that but it's sort of still an evolution of a lot of those ideas, especially a lot of classical ideas. So I think that trying to approach them from that perspective is often really useful. I think is yeah, yeah. Your uh, the the format of your videos, the way that you teach, um, is definitely really unique, and I think that's one of the things that is very engaging about your channel and sets you apart from a lot of other music theory channels. Is that you're not just talking to a camera, but you're actually demonstrating via your time-lapse drawings what you're yeah. explaining. And I think that's a really cool way to really unpack an idea, and it's helpful for people who are visual or kinesthetic learners. Um, did you settle on that through trial and error, or did you always know that, you know, I, I love drawing and I love music theory, I want to kind of do this format? Or was it sort of a process of experimentation to get you to that point? I think I always sort of, once I decided I was going to make the channel in the first place, I think I always knew that I wanted to do it sort of in the vein of someone like Vihard or Minute Physics in that sort of same top-down hand-drawn way, partly because I think that in order to really... So I've, I've talked about this in a couple videos, but like in music is very visual to me, the way I think about it, especially music theory. Uh, and it's all it's more about structures than sounds. And, and obviously the sounds are important, but they're they're a consequence of those structures. So being able to show those structures was always very important to me. When I, And part of that means that I have to be able to show you notation. You have to be able to see the music written down so you can see how the melody is moving, how the chords are, like, how the chords are moving between each other. It's, I think that that's a really important idea, part of understanding music mm-hmm. is understanding, not, not necessarily, you know, this specific set of notation, but understanding seeing the structures as well as hearing them, I think is really valuable. And so I always knew that I wanted to do that. Actually, it didn't really honestly come from me loving drawing. If you go back to our very early videos, I'm not even the one drawing. We Mm. used to have a friend of mine who was our animator who had much better handwriting than I do. Uh, So I sort of, when I was starting this, I reached out to him, was like, hey, I, I don't feel comfortable drawing. Can you take this over? Would you mind helping me out with this? And he was like, yeah, sure, why not? But then after about like, six months or so he had to leave he was like moving mm-hmm. so i was like well i guess i'm gonna take over and i'm gonna have to figure out how to draw mm-hmm. so if you go watch like the early ones where i took over i mean honestly i still don't think i'm very good at drawing it's always really weird when people send me messages like oh man i wish i could draw as well as you and it's like literally like a five-year-old could like this is not hard i'm not very good at this but it's it, it, I mean, it has a specific style, and I've, I've sort of developed a look that I think works really well for what I do, and I'm happy with that, but it's sort of, it's always weird to hear people implying that, like, I'm actually, like, good at drawing, because I, I still don't think I am. But, yeah, that's that's where that came from. Well, maybe over time, you know, you've gotten better, and, and it's hard to notice because you're the one drawing, but I think maybe yeah. your audience could notice that. 
I'm curious. Yeah, that's certainly true. Yeah, I'm curious where the elephant came from. You may have mentioned that in one of your videos, but I'm not quite sure. I love the elephant, and I don't know where that came from. All right, so this is, I mean, honestly, uh, when we were starting out, we were trying to, we were starting out with a couple of really basic introductory videos to start, like, what is a note? What is a chord? What is a scale? And one of the things we had to do was notation. Like, when you look at a clef, when you look at written music on a staff, what does it mean? What do the notes mean? And we wanted to use, you know, um, mnemonics, because those are, you know, how a lot of music students learn. And the one that we had for the treble clef was every good boy does fine, or every good boy deserves fudge, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was super boring. And I was like, this is not good. Uh, what, do we, what else do we got? A friend of mine recommended for the bass clef, gummy bears don't feel anything. And But we didn't have anything for treble clef for a while, so we went back and forth and came up with elephants grow big dangly faces. And those were <laughs> yeah. those were the two uh, two mnemonics. And then we were talking. I was like, yeah, it'd be cool to have some like branding to have like a thing that's s- consistent through the episodes. And we're like, well, we have these. What about elephants and gummy bears? Right. And so we turned to my friend Emmanuel, who was animating, is like, can you draw an elephant? And he draws this like cute cartoon elephant. And it was like, booyah, we're going with that. That's awesome. And so yeah, that's it's mainly just to have a thing. But that's sort of that's where that why that specific thing. And that you also know. explains why you throw gummy bears on the sheet sometimes at the end, which I yep. always thought was a really cool touch. And even if it was totally <laughs> pointless, I'm like, hey, everyone loves gummy bears and he's just throwing some on the page. So that's awesome. Yeah. But that makes total sense. It all yeah. it all comes. I mean, it, it is also totally pointless, but, you know, it's fun. <laughs> at <laughs> least it has some origin and something in uh, something meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. No. So when you create uh, as a creative um do you ever experience, uh, I guess, your equivalent of writer's block where either you don't know what idea to do next or you kind of have uh, a creative block that you can't really overcome? And, and what have you found to be helpful in sort of overcoming that and, and shipping these ideas out into the world? Yeah, so um, I often I find once I have an idea that it's usually pretty easy to bring it into a script, that part doesn't bother me. But sometimes finding what to do a thing about can be difficult. And so I have two main things that I do. The first is I just, you know, I click around the music theory internet, especially honestly, Wikipedia is a really good starting point for a lot of this because everything's like interconnected. Mm-hmm. So I can start on a page I know and then just, oh, ooh, that sounds interesting. Ooh, that sounds interesting and click links until I wind up somewhere and be like, wait, what is going on? I guess I'm going to talk about this now. Right. Like that's how if you go back, we did a video on uh, Blast Beats a while ago. And that came from me looking at the Wikipedia page for drums and then scrolling down and it had like more things. It was one was like a gravity roll. And I was like, I have no idea what that means, but it sounds awesome. Let's see what this is. Mm-hmm. And so I click it and suddenly find out, oh, there's actually this huge, interesting structure behind how blast beats work. And so let's make a video about that. But obviously, I don't stop at Wikipedia. That's like that can't be the end of my research, but it's a good place to start and get sure. ideas. Uh, the other thing I do is based on a uh, philosophy I have or an idea I have that it's a lot easier to come up with a second idea than a first one. So I have this sort of list in my back pocket of ideas that are you know, perfectly fine episode ideas. They're things I could do that wouldn't be too hard that I think people might like, but that don't really interest me that much. Sort of the the main example that I use is fugues. Like I could easily make a video about fugues. People have requested it and like there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with fugues. They're wonderful. But like... I'm not super excited to talk about the theory or structure of fugues. Mm-hmm. So that's always, it sits in my back pocket. And like every week, if I don't have something else, I ask, instead of being like, oh, what am I going to talk about? Am I out of ideas? Is music theory over? It's just like, is this the week where I have to talk about fugues? And so starting <laughs> from that. Yeah. That, have, that week will come yeah. one day. Yeah. The fugues oh, will come, come for a reckoning. Yeah. Now <laughs> that I've said this on like a recording, people will know. But like, oh, no. It's, yeah, I, I might have to come up with a new one, but uh, but no, it just sort of sits there in the back of my mind. It's like, well, I know I'm not done. I know there's more to say. I know there's more topics out there that I haven't used yet, but can I find a better one is sort of um, makes it much easier to approach instead of just sitting there trying to figure out what is what is there still to say, you know? Sure, sure. Do you uh, keep like a running list of ideas as you discover them and say, oh, I'd love to do a video on that and add it to some database or something? Yeah, I do. I have uh, I have a list. I think it's it's probably something like 30 to 40, maybe 50 ideas long right now. Uh, I mean, a lot of them are things that I probably will never actually do. 
because either I put them on there, but they didn't actually wind up exciting me when I went back or they're from a pre earlier time where I was doing a slightly different kind of video. And so they may never actually work, but I have a lot of stuff that's sort of sitting there that I might go back and look at and be like, oh, hey, actually, this is interesting or I am excited about this now. Maybe I'll go look into it a bit more and see what happens. So I have that and I have I, I also get audience suggestions a lot of uh, the time where people are like, oh, you should look up this thing or this composer or this theorist or this idea, this structure. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, and I'll sort of put that on my list and maybe I'll come back to it later. Maybe I won't. But, you know, I, I have it there in case I'm like, oh, I want to do something a little out there and weird. What if people recommend it, you know? That's really good. So really no lack of ideas based on your yeah. exploration and just the recommendations of your audience. Yeah. 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 And I think it's sort of I, I, so from a because I, I like to do a lot of math in my head, but I, I sort of looked at how many I actually need. And like there's 50, 52 weeks a year, two weeks I take off for Christmas, 12 of those remaining are song analyses. So that puts us down to 38, if I did that right. Yeah, 38. And then six of those are Q&As because I do one every other month, which drops that down to 32, uh, which means I only need about like 32 ideas per year. And music theory isn't a super fast growing field, but there's there's going to be 32 topics per year for a long time. Sure. So I'm, I'm not super worried about that. Right. Now, is this your, I don't, I haven't asked you this. Um, is this your full-time job? And how did you, if it is, uh, well, yeah, is it is this your full-time job? Uh, it is. Uh, at this point, I used to teach kids private lessons on piano and voice. Mm -hmm. And at some point, it just like, I wasn't was never doing a huge amount of that, but I, I was sort of doing that uh, as well as this. And at some point, it just doing YouTube got to be so much work as we were sort of blowing up uh, last year during the summer. Uh, that I just got to the point where I was like, you know what, I just, I have to stop this. I have to just focus on YouTube or I'm just going to burn out. Like if sure. I'm making myself do all this other stuff too. Right. So it's, I mean, it's, I'm not at a point where it's, you know, paying me millions of dollars or anything, but I'm at a point where I can pretty much do it as a job sort of, if I'm careful. So yes, that is sort of, that that's made it possible, I guess is, yeah, I'm going to stop talking. I made, gave my answer, you know. Sure. Yeah. No. That's that's yeah. great. Um, and does the um, did the main way that that kind of um, come to fruition was through like Patreon and ad revenue, or is there some other form of sort of income that helps you make YouTube like your primary thing? It's mostly Patreon and ad revenue. I mean, that's sort of on in good months those are roughly equal on bad months it's mostly patreon because i'm not getting as much ad revenue but uh like it those tend it tends to be sort of an equal balance between those i think honestly at this point our patreon might be a little smaller than it should be because we launched it when we were pretty small so we didn't have that big immediate like initial um explosion of interest that you get if you launch a patreon when you already have a lot of uh, audience members but sure. like it was really useful to have early on you know sort of make it so that we weren't losing money doing this because it doesn't cost a lot besides my time but like in terms of actual money i spend it's not a lot it's mostly like software and occasionally i have to buy new staff paper but that's like six bucks every couple months right so the, the actual material costs are not high but gotcha. like the amount of time that it takes is pretty significant. So definitely being able to justify that with Patreon has been really, really valuable. That's good. Now you, you've mentioned a couple times, uh, the word we, do you have a team that you work with to make these videos? Uh, so it's mostly me. I do, I do the, like, obviously I do the drawing. I do the narration. I do the script writing. I'm the actual theorist here, but, uh, and I also do all the editing, but my brother, uh, is our director because when we film I'm sitting underneath the camera and so I can't really look up at it I can't see what it's doing I have to sort of trust him to keep an eye and make sure the shot is shot is good the paper's in a good position uh, and also he's often there to help me come up with what to draw because usually I'll write most of it beforehand but occasionally I'll get to something where it's like I don't really know what to do here I can't think of anything good and I don't want to spend like half an hour staring at it 
So I'm just going to put like anything like doodle on the theme of unity or something and leave that. And he and I will figure it out in the moment while we're filming. And so he's, he's helpful for that too. We also have one other person who I work with, uh, another YouTuber who runs the channel up and Adam, her name is Jade. And she, she just does some script supervising stuff for us. She, uh, reads the scripts and sort of gives me her feedback from a another creator's perspective and I do the same thing for her. So it's like I said it's primarily me. It's if you were to say that I I was 12 tone that would not be completely inaccurate, but sure. like there are other people who are important to this process. Makes total sense. Um now do you also do like the editing and kind of like the time lapse where you are, you know, lining up your voiceover with your with your with the video as well? Yeah, that's that's all me. Uh, we initially when we started, we had a videographer who was working with us, but he got super busy super fast because he had just moved to LA. He was a friend of a friend, uh, and we met and we were like, "Hey, this would be cool. I want to like, get started working on something." And then like he got a real job and was like, "I actually can't just like work on this YouTube channel that isn't paying me." Uh, and it was like, "Well, we can't afford to pay you," so he was like, "Okay, well." I guess you're going to have to edit, which is totally, it was totally fine. That's not a, that's not, he's a wonderful dude. I love him. Uh, he's still a friend, but like, he, we just, I, at that point had to be like, well, I guess I'm going to learn how Premiere works because I don't know what I'm doing. So sure. I had to sit down and figure out and poke at things and learn, teach, effectively teach myself. And I've gotten to the point where I'm pretty good at the specific set of things I do with it. But like, whenever I have like any friends who, cause I, I'm friends with a lot of other people in the YouTube world at this point. And I'll see people talking about other video editing stuff and I'll be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I do not even know the words you're saying. And they'll <laughs> yeah. be like, oh, I have to let, layer these in. It's like, I just, I, I know how to speed up video to align itself with audio. I'm very good at that. Right. I do it very quickly, but that's my one skill, you know? Sure. It's amazing that as a YouTuber, the things you need to learn out of necessity, because I talked <laughs> to... Ben, 8-Bit Music Theory, who is like, I'm not a graphic designer, yet I have to make a thumbnail, you know, multiple times a month. I'm not a video editor, yet yet I have to learn how to edit this video. And I'm not an animator, yet I have to learn how to animate notes on a staff. You know, so it's it's really (laughs) interesting how, um, as a YouTuber, it almost combines all of these technical and creative skills to where you have to sort of learn on the job, so to speak. And it's like you have this goal you want to accomplish and yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you learn like the just the very specific subset of it that you need. Like I, I couldn't make the sort of videos that Eight Bit makes, and he probably couldn't make the sort of video I make because we each have a very specific like niche set of skills to make things work for what we're trying to do. Sure. sure. So yeah, yeah. So what are some successes um, and failures that you've experienced maybe on YouTube and on Patreon? Because um, I think it's super interesting the climate that we live in today as uh, content creators and as musicians and composers and just creative people is that oftentimes I talk to a lot of video game composers. It's not enough to just make music and put it out into the world. You almost have to build an audience. You have to be a thought leader. You have to be putting your stuff, you know, on YouTube and making unique content that draws people to your brand. And then maybe they'll discover your music. Um, So a lot of people uh, that I'm friends with are trying to make regular YouTube content and build up audiences that way. Um, what are some sort of pitfalls that you've experienced throughout your journey on YouTube and Patreon um, where you're like, man, I'll never do that again. And maybe some successes where the, that you found have been really fruitful for your brand that maybe you could share with people who, who want to build up uh, an audience in that way. Yeah, so the biggest thing that I've found success-wise, I'll start with that, is um, just relatability. I think that for a long time we were doing videos about music theory, and we were doing like whatever music theory topic I wanted to talk about, whatever was interesting to me. And then at some point, uh, it was actually when Leonard Cohen passed away, my dad sent me an email. It was like, hey, this might be interesting to talk about Hallelujah, because... It's this song he wrote that literally describes its harmony while he's playing it. And like, what is that about? What is he saying? What's going on? What is he actually playing? And so we made that video and we're like, hey, this is actually really interesting to sort of look at things, look at how this stuff comes together into an actual piece of art instead of just the structures behind it. And so we decided we were going to start doing a monthly song analysis. And that, I think, was where we wound up 
blowing up was I mean, we we blew up with the black hole sun video that that's where we really got started to gain traction was we did um another tribute to chris cornell when he passed away analyzing black hole sun that came out the same day i believe as regina specter's cover of black hole sun that she did as a tribute to him and mm. we wound up on the recommended videos for that and that video her video got millions of views which meant our video got hundreds of thousands just from people being like oh what is this sure and sure. suddenly obviously you get a lot of hate when new people find your work but like you also get a lot of people being like oh my god this is super cool i never thought of thinking about music this way i never thought of looking at things this way or maybe mm. i was looking for something like this and couldn't find it mm. i think that's something that 8-bit does really well too which said his name was ben i didn't actually know that but i think that's something ben does really well too uh where it's tied to video game music so you can look at like he just did one that i haven't actually watched yet about it looks like it's about majora's mask and just judging by the thumbnail but uh he's, he's done stuff about like donkey kong and those sorts of things and i don't have to know music to know donkey kong and mm -hmm. so i can come at it and be like what is what is the music of donkey kong what's going on in this and I can relate to that because I have sort of it has a grounding in my cultural experience mm -hmm. so I can I can understand where it's coming from more and that's something that I think took us a while to find but once we did it was just like oh my like our biggest most successful video ever is our analysis of comfortably numb which mm -hmm. you know Pink Floyd song classic it really really interesting harmony but uh but like that video was just it's a song people really like and it's sure. a song that people might want to know what's going on in so we can sort of gain traction from that even if you know i can't necessarily get you super interested in the difference between functional and non-functional harmony i can show you this song that uses that difference really interestingly right to right. show you why that might matter you know right so relatability yeah. has been a, has been a big thing yeah too. and i and i personally just uh, one man's opinion. I absolutely love the the song analyses. Um, I I think it's my favorite Thank thing you. on the channel. I mean, I love everything on your channel as far as because I am a theory nerd as well, um, and I'm always learning and, and looking to grow. But the song analyses are just really fun, um, and I love like the Hey Bulldog analysis because that's just such a such a, uh, an underrated Beatles song. And I'm a huge Beatles it's, nerd, it's and it yeah. was just super cool to hear that <laughs> talked about Thank and you. sort of explored and elevated. So. Um, so that's really yeah. cool. Do you have any experiences of, I guess, missteps or failures along the way that you've learned from that maybe you could share with people as things to avoid? Yeah. So I think so. I think the big thing to think about in that is, oh, the biggest thing that I think is often a mistake I make is branding. Like you were saying with like titles and thumbnails, trying to figure out how to structure those in a way that is interesting to people and actually grabs you mm -hmm. and sort of makes it clear enough what you're talking about without giving everything away you know it's and it's a balance sometimes when i'm talking about more complicated things i might not want to be like oh this is a video about interval vectors because i don't necessarily because you don't have a reason to care about that so i guess that again comes back to relatability but sort of trying to think about if you or not not you but if someone who has some interest in music but isn't really super into it and hasn't done a bunch of reading on it like you have or like i have has sort of like if they saw that thumbnail if they saw that thumbnail and title would they click it mm -hmm. and trying to understand what that's like and that's honestly like a lot of my missteps like i look back and like i did a video in january i think was that january this is february about graphic scores which are, um, you know, uh, scores that are sort of written in ways that aren't as interpretable and are more about being a piece of visual art that you then interpret through music instead of being clearly structured music. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really interesting topic and I think it's really cool. I think that the title I gave it, I think, was uh, Graphic Scores beyond, uh, beyond the Written. I don't remember. It was, it wasn't compelling if you didn't already know you were interested in graphic scores is i think the mistake i made and looking back like i wish i had like named that video something like painting with music or sure, something like sure. that that sort of gives you a reason to click it even if you don't already know the thing and i think that's often a question that i need to get better at asking myself and i've tried to get better at asking myself is like is this something that a normal person would know and want to click on or do i have to i don't want to use the word trick but like sort of spin it in a way that convinces you that you might actually be interested in this, even if you wouldn't 
instinctively think you would. Again, I like I don't want to make like clickbait, like stuff that you click and it's like, oh, this is just not what I wanted. This is uninteresting. This is but I want to be able to make the case that what I'm talking about is interesting. Sure. And if I sure. don't do that effectively in the title and thumbnail, then it doesn't matter how well I do it in the video, you know? Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's kind of like, uh, you know, and I've done some email marketing in my day. Uh, and really, yeah. the subject line, you toe this line between you obviously don't want to be spammy. You don't want to be clickbaity. But if your subject line isn't good, nobody will read your email and nobody will take the action that you want them to take. So there's a certain yeah. degree of you have to be you have to hook them in in some way. So I, I completely, completely resonate with that. But um, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about uh, criticism because I've been doing some music theory videos and I've already and I have an extremely small channel, uh, 200 subscribers, uh, and I've already experienced people, uh, <laughs> repeat offenders, I'll call them, um, <laughs> who uh, yep. tend to sort of follow me around and correct everything I say about music theory. Yeah. And I'm appreciative for the most part of their criticisms and I take them to heart and I try to, you know, take what's good and leave the rest and try to use it to improve. But um, I imagine as you're, as you're talking about such a deep subject as music theory, you're going to get critics. And obviously there are people who are genuinely curious and genuinely want to learn and maybe have uh, respectful uh, criticisms. There are people who who are just there to find stuff wrong with your video, right? They just want to point something yeah. out and be smart in the comment section. And then there are just total trolls, people who just, you know, are looking, you know, just to start an argument or get a reaction. I'm curious your experience with with criticism and critics in general and and how you handle them um, even like mentally and emotionally like how you how you kind of move forward with your with your creative yeah. works um, in the wake of these criticisms I guess so I think a thing that I have definitely noticed over the course of receiving lots and lots and lots of criticism is that there's this almost not one-to-one, -one, but pretty clear inverse correlation between how valid a critique is and how nice it is, so and how, how mean it is. Sorry, I phrased that backwards, but sort of people who are... Like, in a recent video, uh, the, the one about Roman numerals, I referred to the famous composer Ludwig Amadeus Mozart, and I, I know his first name is Wolfgang. I made a mistake, uh, and people who pointed that out were mostly, they were super chill about it. They were like, oh, that, I... Are you sure? Did did you possibly mean Wolfgang or like some of you are like, oh, who's Ludwig Amadeus Mozart? But like there, there was no one being like, oh, my God, you're such an idiot. How could you possibly screw this up? Mm. Whereas when I make claims that I think are pretty reasonably defensible and basically, I guess the, the point is um, experts, actual experts in fields are often actually pretty chill. And so when it's the sort of critique that an expert would give. And the sort of thing that an expert would find flaw with, a lot of the criticisms tend to be pretty chill. They tend to be like, I think this is what you meant. I think you made a mistake here. This is how I think about this. Are you sure it's not this? Whatever. But like when you're right and it's the sort of thing that only, I mean, well, the, I don't know. Right is a hard thing with music theory because it's all at some level up to judgment calls. But like when my claim is totally defensible, uh, that's when people who are just complete jerks will come out and just be like, oh, you can't, like, when I did the um, Stairway to Heaven video, that was a long time ago now, but I, there's there's this whole thing in Stairway to Heaven where the second chord is really ambiguous. Um, the second chord, he's arpeggiating, but he plays, let's see if I can do this from memory, it's G sharp, and then the bass, and then C, E, and then a high B. It's not in that order, but those are the four notes. Uh, and my argument was that this is E major and the C is a non-harmonic tone that's sort of suspended through from the chords on either side. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a totally reasonable analysis. I think that it's not the only reasonable analysis. There are other, other reasonable arguments, but I think that that is a totally defensible stance. And, but I got this one, one commenter who just like could not let it go who just say they were like no you can't do that you can't ignore this note you're why are you such an idiot why are you so wrong how could you possibly do this you clearly don't know what you're talking about and it's just like you have to call this what was what was he calling it it was g sharp augmented add sharp nine i think was his argument was that that was the only possible answer for the chord and i think that he sort of was approaching it from the perspective that music theory is like 
like Sudoku, where there's there's a set of answers and you have to figure out what they are. And once sure. you've identified the chord, you have done the analysis. And that's not how music theory works at all. But like, plus, do we seeing, really think Jimmy yeah. Page was thinking that chord when he was <laughs> writing that riff? Yeah, probably not. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the question I kept asking was like, okay, I can I can explain a lot of things if this is E major. I can give you a lot of good explanations for what it's doing. What does G sharp augmented add sharp nine do? How do how does that help you explain the song? Right. And right. so anyway, I'm not not going to spend too long going off on this dude, but like that that's the sort of thing that people tend to be jerks about is when the criticism isn't. I don't know, maybe it's a Dunning-Kruger type thing where people who just, like, don't actually know that much about the field get really aggressive about the things they think they know. Sure, yeah. Um, but They've taken, like, three theory classes and they think they're the bomb. Yeah. But it's like, like I said, in my experience, like I said, like when I said Ludwig Amadeus Mozart, no one has been an actual, like, honest-to-God jerk to me yet. Like, they've been... They've made fun of me. They've, they've gotten like people teasing me about it, but that's fine. That's funny to me. I made a mistake, but like no one has come at me and been like, wow, you're an idiot. How could you possibly call yourself an academic musician if you don't know Mozart's first name? Mm-hmm. Because obviously I know Mozart's first name. I just got him confused with Beethoven. But like, again, like this is a really long way of saying just like when criticism is valid, it's usually nice. And when it's mean, it's usually not worth listening to. Uh, especially because if there is a valid criticism there, someone else will come along and make it nicely. So that's been a big part of how I think about this is just like, if you're a jerk, I have a delete button and I am not afraid anymore to use it. I think there's honestly like this sort of a power trip there where it's like, yeah, if if my video is so bad, how come it still exists and your comment doesn't like Hmm. that's, that's a big part of how I, I don't know. Like I said, it's sort of, Dealing emotionally with people being mean to you for no reason, I think that's important, and trying to figure out how to handle that. And like I said, I just, I do not hesitate to use my delete button when people are jerks to me. It's just, sure. I don't care anymore. Yeah. Have there ever been, has there ever been a time where either maybe through criticism or um, just because of a heavy workload, you've ever been tempted to quit? You've just been tempted to say, you know, I, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And if so... How did you overcome that? Um, honestly, I got it's sort of. There's never really been a time where I've felt like I actually wanted to stop doing it. I think that's one of the um, the benefits. So I've, I've mentioned in a previous video at one point I'm autistic, and so one of the benefits of that is that like it can be hard to develop habits, but once I do, they become basically structures in my life they become like i i don't it's not a conscious decision at this point to release a video on friday it's just a thing that happens every friday a video goes out and so i have to do the work beforehand so it's very easy for me to just be like nope this has to happen this is just how it's going to be we're going to do this and just sort of power through it that way and that i mean honestly sort of weaponizing my disabilities against myself may not be the most healthy approach in the long term but it does help get the videos out so Hmm. that's i've that's been it's not necessarily an applicable piece of advice for most people but like it that's definitely been a lot of how i've gotten through a lot of this stuff is just like it's a thing that happens i'm not gonna upload a video it's just uh, that's not really up for debate sure so i just have to figure out a way to make sure that actually happens you know yeah on that note um i saw a really cool tweet from you a while back um kind of talking about how you are comforted by the fact that you have a deadline. Uh, the general gist of the tweet was because even if you're not as pleased with a video that you upload, you can just sort of, you know, say, okay, it's done. I've done my video and turn your attention to the next one. And I've heard similar sentiments from people like uh, Carlos Eni, Insane in the Rain Music, who does a lot of vi- uh, yeah. video game jazz covers, where he says, you know, I, I, I interviewed him and he said, you know, I would not be here if it weren't for my deadline. My deadline is is my guiding principle where I, I post a video and then even if I, you know, even there's four or five things that could have been better, I can still direct my attention to the next one. So um, can you maybe talk a little bit about uh, deadlines in your life and, and this sort of this recurring video posting schedule and how that's helped you? Yeah, so I, mean, I've, I feel very much the same way as, uh, I said Carlos was his name? Yeah, Carlos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I feel very much the same. It's just like, if I didn't have this regular schedule, I would not upload videos at all. It just wouldn't happen. Like, I, I know myself well enough to know that. Uh, but anyway, in, in terms of ph- uh, philosophy here, I 
there's a great quote I've heard it attributed to Steve Jobs. I think it's him, but um, uh, where it's uh, real genius is ship, where basically like you can spend mm. years making this product. In his case, years. I'm not spending years, but you can spend years making this product. But like at some point, you have to actually put it out in the world and let it make a difference. Let it be received. Otherwise, you're not doing anything. And there's sort of, obviously, in my work, it's not shipping, it's publishing, but it's it's the same sort of like, you get to this point of diminishing returns, and you get there a lot faster than you think you would, where, like, you can spend another hour on the video, but is that going to make it another hour's worth of work better? Like, sure. that, that declines, honestly, I found much faster than you would think it would. So at some point, spending another if I wanted to make my video 10% better, I might have to spend five, six, seven, eight extra hours of work on that video. Mm-hmm. And I could spend that five, six, seven, eight hours of work doing a significant chunk of a whole new video. So yeah. that has been sort of how I often think about it. There's also another thing that I is another quote that I use a lot. That's sort of in the back of my head that I got from a, uh, one of the teachers at my college, which was, he would talk about the greatest guitarist to ever play his bedroom. And, you know, it's th- this idea that, you know, you sit around in your in your bedroom and you're shredding and you sound amazing, but like, who's hearing you? Who are you performing for? What do you, and that's, and that's not to say that you don't get anything from playing music on its own. Like I, I sit around at the piano and mess around all the time, but like, it's the idea that if you're not, sharing your work and you're not getting your work out there that you're not you're not what am i trying to say it, it's almost i guess unfair to your work if you're doing really good stuff that you're not sharing sure and so sort of the idea that, that that's the idea that i tend to focus on is just like get a thing done get it out there make a new thing get it out there and so that way my work is doing something it's out there it's someone is watching it instead of me sitting there spending like oh could i tweak this setting for another five hours to make this video better in ways that no one else will notice you know right absolutely uh two things i thought of while you were speaking is the the, the pareto principle the 80 20 rule have you heard of that um, I feel like I have, but if you could remind me, I, my mind is blanking right yeah, now. Yeah, basically it is that um, 80% of your results come from 20% of the same things. I, I'm kind of butchering it. Basically, it's the same idea of what you're saying as you reach a point where uh, a certain uh, sort of group of responsibilities or tasks makes your video like 80% of what it's going to be, but then anything above that takes like double or triple the amount of time to get it to that like hundred percent level. And so there's this sense of like, you know, done is better than perfect and and good is good enough, you know, as far as just getting it out there and and shipping it and publishing it in your case. And then the second thing I thought of is I want to send you this video uh, by the founder of Patreon and it's this, this speech, everything is funnels. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that one. Yes. It's, okay. Awesome. Yeah, yes. It's great. So that is so encouraging to me as a content creator. Yeah, just when he goes really through important. all the creatives who have published so much stuff, and you know, we think they're an overnight success, but really takes like yeah. ten years to become an overnight success. Yeah. Um, and that's and that's uh, the other thing that I think is important with having a uh, schedule and trying to produce new content regularly is that it's much better practice, so you get better much faster. So you know, if you're spending two months to make a video then every lesson you're going to learn from that video is learned over the course of two months. And it's it might be more than I might learn in a week, but it's not eight times more. You know, there's a lot more that you get from just like trying it, put it out there, move on and try the same thing again and iterate like that instead of just spending so much time tweaking little details on one one product effectively. Sure, sure. Yeah, that makes total sense. So speaking of publishing, I'm super curious um, getting down kind of to brass tacks and individual yeah. tasks, what your process is. So when you have an idea, can you walk me through everything that happens from taking that idea and saying, okay, I want to do a video on this to the moment that you, that you kind of publish your video? Yeah. So, I mean, there's sort of, I, I think of it in terms of like an ideal week and I have a structure of how that's supposed to go. And some weeks I get that, some weeks I don't. 
But in theory, what happens is sometime around Friday or Saturday, I'll pick a topic and then I'll spend the weekend, Saturday and Sunday sort of researching, which may be a lot of work, maybe no work at all if I already know the thing and it's just sort of my own mental models. But it may be like, oh, I have to go find like 19th century manuscripts about music theory and I have to find translations of those like that. That's happened too. So it's sort of Saturday and Sunday I set aside for like preparation and research and sort of I have structures going on in the back of my head, sort of like script skeletoning, uh, thinking about how I want to structure things. That's it's not like in the forefront of my mind, but it's sort of going on in the back. There's the wheels turning as I'm doing other things. Sure. So that that sort of preparatory pre pre production effectively, and then Monday is the day that I write a script and I sort of sit down and sort of take all those ideas that have been bubbling around in my head and sort of slam them together into one document that says like this is what I'm gonna say and sort of that's honestly by the time I actually do that I've done so much like thinking about it in the back of my head that I my first draft is usually mostly what I go with like it's I mostly just get it on the page and then I'm happy with it sure but I send it to like I said I have a couple script supervisors my brother and then Jade and I send it to them Monday night uh, and then I get their feedback, uh, and then I incorporate that or don't or whatever. But I take that in and do what I do with it. And then Tuesday is recording day, where I, you know, what I'll do is I'll record the entire thing, just sort of read through the script one line at a time, and just go until I get each line right, and then go through the whole thing. And then I go through and take out all the gaps. And like, uh, honestly, like mostly my stuff is one or two sentences per thing clip and then i'll sort of cut that down and cut away all the gaps between those and blend those together mm -hmm. into just one long recording uh and that's also when i put in and program up the audio examples that i'm going to use and put those in and i do the like i try and get rid of plosives if i can uh like do sort of audio editing stuff while i'm there and then sort of i might have to re-record a line or two but that's once that's done the audio is basically set in stone unless there's like an emergency. I'm like, oh no, I said something wrong or, oh no, they have to add this or I might go back, but usually I don't. Sure. And, and uh, what application so, do you yeah. use for that? You may have already mentioned. I actually, I actually use, do, just do it in Premiere, honestly. Okay. Like I, 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 partly I'm not a good audio engineer, so I, I try and do what I can, but I think sort of just having those, that frame division is actually really helpful for me. Just sort of, instead of trying to like, optimize like oh do i want it like 0.5 milliseconds or 0.7 milliseconds here it's just like no i have 60 frames i'm gonna cut those frames and that works and i think that's a lot more it sort of cuts down to what what's important i think yeah. in that at least for me and sort of at least in terms of what i'm capable of in terms of audio editing sure but once once that's done uh the next step uh is on wednesday is filming day and that starts usually during the day i will sort of listen to the uh, listen back to the audio and write the animation directions and it's going like a line at a time and just like what do I draw here what do I draw here what do I draw here and that's honestly the most frustrating part of the entire process because it's like it's creative work in that I have to be making creative artistic decisions but it's not compelling work like the script writing because script writing I'm like okay how do I structure this information how do I do this but like the animation directions just like okay what what am I drawing here and I have to make a decision so that's what I do with that to sort of get through that is I do basically 10 minutes at a time and I'll set an alarm for 10 minutes, do 10 minutes of that. And that usually gets me about a minute to two minutes of final audio um, directed. So I have the animation directions for about that long per mm -hmm. 10 minute chunk. And then Wednesday night, once the sun has gone down to control for lighting, uh, we set up all our stuff and we film. And that usually takes about an hour to an hour and a half. Uh, depending on how long the thing is and how many times we have to stop and figure out like doodles that were I haven't actually defined yet and go through that. And then after that, Thursday is when I edit. So I've, you know, I've transferred the file. I do a pre-edit. And before I even do anything, I speed the whole thing up to 400% because almost nothing that I do is going to be slower than 400%. Gotcha. Uh, that's just everything is almost everything is that faster, faster. And then I sort of just go through and cut each individual drawing and figure out where I want it to start, where I want it to end, and then set it so it's that length. Mm. And then it does that and drag the thing over. And obviously I'm taking out gaps in the middle there too. But that's sort of, I think, like I said, I've gotten pretty fast at that. I can do about 
two to three minutes of final footage edited per hour, I would say. Uh, and then, then once that's done, I just export, upload, I have to do the thumbnail, I have to do some backend stuff, like adding cards and, like, um, subtitles, stuff like that, mm -hmm. and then, then it's done, and then I just schedule it to launch. That's awesome. That's really cool, man. It sounds like you've yeah. got a, it sounds like you've got it really optimized at this point, yeah. just with every, you know, the ideal week, I think, is, is so key of just having certain days that you do certain things. And so, you know, on those days, yeah. you know, you're going to wake up, you're going to do those things. And I think that's just yeah. good, you know, for our brains. Cause obviously uh, as our, as humans, our brains want to automate as yeah. much as possible. So um, yeah. I think that's, that's Unless really you cool. have to think the better. Yeah. Right. Exactly. In recent memory, um, what video uh, for you, and this could be totally irrespective of views or popularity, but what video was the most fun for you personally to create? I mean, it's, it's, it's hard just because a lot of things can be fun for a lot of different reasons. Mm -hmm. Like the, the song analyses are a lot of fun because like, I learned about a song I didn't know. And like the Q and A's can be fun because I get to work with a friend or collabs are similar. But I think if I had to pick one, it would probably be the Roman numerals one. Uh, uh, Partly that's just, it's fairly recent, so it's still fresh in my head. Like, there's definitely a lot of, like, oh, it's whatever the last video I made. But, uh, but that one was fun, partly because it was a fun piece of banter with the audience, because people often criticize how I write my Roman numerals. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, all right, let's talk about it. Let's look into this. And then I was like, hey, it's probably not going to be super interesting, but I'll take a look at the history, see what happens, see when we decided. And it's just, it's so cool. There's so much, <laughs> it's like I did not expect and then I also on top of that, like like I said, this was the video that I had to go find like an early 19th century German manuscript by a um, theorist named Gottfried Weber and sort of find an English translation of it to try and see how he described Roman numerals because he sort of viewed as sort of the father of modern Roman numerals. There's some people before him. It's in the video. But uh, he was sort of the big figure and I wanted to see what he did and how he described it. And in order to find that, I had to read through a lot of his stuff. And it's actually, like, it's really fun to read like 19th, early 19th century ideas about harmony hmm. because they're just, they're so familiar, but they're not quite the same, you know? Like, first of all, like it, because it's partly because it's German, but he like uh, refers to instead of triads and seventh chords, it's threefold, uh, threefold chords and fourfold chords. Oh, and then cool. major triads are large threefold chords and minor ones are small threefold chords. Hmm. And there's sort of terminology, but there's also like, he kept doing this thing where he would present a thing and be like, yeah, I can't actually prove this, but I'm just going to say it's true. And it was like explicitly like, it's like, I do not have a proof for this, so I'm not going to insult your intelligence by pretending I do, but we're just going to say this is a fact. And it's just like, it was really interesting because like, there's a part where he was like, oh, we, you may have noticed that like the one chord and the four chord change qualities together. So they're either both major or both minor, but the five chord is always major no matter what we're in. And that's weird, but that's just how it works and we got to accept it. Mm. And I was looking at that, I was like, no, just, just ask one more question, dude. Just, just just look at that a little bit closer and but it's just like sort of the way that they thought about music was so clearly related to how we think about it but clearly an ancestor not the same thing and it was just was really really fun for me to see it sort of in their own words and in mm -hmm. in the way that a 19th century theorist would describe 19th century theory it was it was really cool so yeah i, I would say that one that's really cool. So geeking out a little bit here, and just because you've piqued my curiosity, why should yeah. the five chord always be major? So I, I think that the the reason that he wanted that was uh, was uh, the reason that that's traditionally is because you know you need that dominant function, you need the five to one resolution, mm -hmm. and so you need that leading tone. So if you have a five minor, you'd have the minor seventh of the key, and that's a whole step away from the root, so it doesn't want to resolve up enough. Sure. So even even in minor, we tend to just use the five major to make you know harmonic minor or whatever. And these days, that tends to be thought of as an add-on to natural minor, whereas back then he was thinking of it as just this is a part of minor. This is minor still has a five major chord, and so. But I was looking at that, I was like, just, just ask what what if the five was minor? What if what if the one and the four were different qualities? What if like. And it's just like so, so many things that if he hadn't been like, well, this is a fact, nothing we can do about it. It just could have 
discovered a lot of things a lot sooner. I mean, not you know, not discovered, but re, you know, popularized. But but yeah, that that it just it was was really interesting to me to see. That it was just like, well, this is a fact. Nothing we can do about it. The five goes to the one, and that's important. So we got to have a leading tone. So yeah. Well, cool. Thank you. That's uh, yeah, that's awesome. That's good to know. Um, and it's really interesting that perspective, which kind of like segues into something I wanted to ask you about music theory and that's how much of music theory is sort of just objective fact. It's just, it's just set in stone, you know, um, like you mentioned back when we were talking before about how your stairway to heaven video, uh, when you named that chord, it was a perfectly reasonable analysis, but you mentioned there could be other perfectly reasonable analyses. And so there's a level of subjectivity there. I guess I'm curious from your perspective, how much of music theory is objective, meaning it's just unchanging. A minor chord is always a minor chord or a major chord is always a major chord. And that's that. And how much of it is a little more subjective where there can be room for interpretation and that sort of thing. So I think it's sort of Somewhere in between, the way I tend to think about it often is that uh, the paradigm you use to analyze is completely subjective. You can look at things through a functional harmony lens, a neo-Riemannian lens, a Schenkerian lens, whatever, whatever form of analysis you choose to use, but that those paradigms are going to have their own rules that within that system are objective. Like, you know, if I were to say, oh, this is, if I were to look at, say, the Let's the do up changes one six minor four five, if I were to say oh that starts on the subdominant goes to the dominant, and then resolves to the tonic four chord, and it's just like that is that is nonsense. But it's not nonsense because those are the rules of music. It's nonsense because those are the rules of functional harmony. So there is, you can be wrong, but I think that which like I said which paradigm you choose to use, how you choose to approach a piece of music, is not inherently or cannot be objective because it's fundamentally describing an experiential thing you're talking about how the music sounds and feels and what the artistic fiber of it is i guess so you know you and i can both look at the mona lisa and we can have emotional reactions but those emotional reactions could be completely different in the same way we can listen to a piece of music we could listen to beethoven's ninth and be like this and it moves us both but like in completely different ways and we can hear things differently some of us might hear i that, that sorry beethoven's ninth isn't a good example of this but there's songs out there where you know it's not necessarily clear what the key is like which of these chords is which of these notes is the root and you know you might hear it one way i might hear it another and if i do my analysis in the key that i hear it in you might look at that and be like this is not how i hear it this is not accurate to my experience but that doesn't necessarily mean that i'm wrong Mm. whereas if my analysis isn't consistent with the idea that that with with my own idea conception of the key it can be wrong so i think that um fundamentally i think a lot less of music is objective than people like to think or especially theorists like to think Mm -hmm. oh and at a high level like like academic theorists tend to understand that but like you know, if you like uh, undergrad musicians, a lot of the time, or yeah, honestly, you know, some some high level theorists too. But like, I'm I'm going back and forth. But there's there's this idea that you know we're under exploring the truth of music and like, revealing these secrets of what is actually happening under the hood in an objective sense. And I think that that is often unfounded. And I think that that's often based on much more based on your interpretation than most than a lot of people would like to admit. Gotcha. So if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. So I think the answer is a little bit of yes, a little bit of no, but not as object, yeah. not as black and white as as uh, yeah. as the uh, YouTube it's... critics and the music theory <laughs> pedants on YouTube yeah. would have you uh, believe. Yeah, no, it's fundamentally a subjective thing, but which it has to be internally consistent. You know, sure. you you have to follow your own rules and analysis, but right. you don't have to follow someone else's. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I suppose that's why there's so many, you know, there's so many books written about new ways to analyze music that, you know, yeah. uh, the Lydian chromatic concepts, you know, and uh, things of that nature of just uh, different theories of like, hey, you know, I, I know functional harmony, but I'm going to try something new. Uh, it's totally you know, yeah. different and maybe a new way to think about things. 
Well, I want to yeah. I want to wrap up, man. Uh, we've been talking for an hour. I really appreciate the time <laughs> that you've given. It's been super insightful. Um, oh, I want to wrap up just chatting about uh, video game music because uh, you mentioned in uh, a recent Q&A that you love to play games um, as yeah. sort of a way to unwind. So I'd love to hear about, you know, maybe what you're playing right now and uh, if there have been any video game soundtracks in particular that have really influenced you or, or some of your favorite uh, game music. Yeah. So what I'm playing right now, uh, I'll start with that, is just... Um, I tend to like, you know, really like, I guess, hardcore puzzle games, things that are really, you know, um, logic driven. So I'm currently in the middle of my second playthrough of Steven's Sausage Roll, which is, I don't know if you haven't played it. I don't know if you play puzzle games, but if you do, it is fantastic. I have heard uh, of that game. But, yeah. Have you, do you watch yeah. Mark Brown's channel, Game Maker's Toolkit? I do not. No, uh, I I check it out, but yeah, definitely check it out. Uh, I'm not a, a game developer at all, but I find this super yeah. fascinating. Is um, he has a video called "What Makes a Good Puzzle Game," and yeah. he talks about the sausage. What's he called? The sausage game. Steven Sausage Roll. Yeah, and he talked about how it was just a phenomenal. Uh, the, the game yeah. mechanics were phenomenal, and so I, I saw it. And it looked mm. quirky. It looked fun. So. Um, that's really cool, but I'll, I'll send you that video after yeah. so you can check that out. Nice. Yeah, but I'm, I'm doing that. I'm also, I've been playing through all of the games from a studio called Zachtronics, uh, who does sort of programming puzzle games. They started Space Chem is sort of their, there was their first one, I think most famous one. And I've logged over like 150 hours on Space Chem. It is like one of my favorite games ever. Oh, wow. But I've sort of been looking at what they've done since then. They have, I'm currently on, I think their fourth, uh, major, oh, sorry, I think fifth. Because they had one that sort of was a flash game that came out before they really started. But anyway, it was uh, Shenzhen IO is the one that I'm on, and that's sort of, it's it's at this point it's like it's literally programming. Like they give you this really limited programming language, and they sort of arrange chips on a thing and wire them together, and then give them instructions, and then try and meet reproduce certain goals. Oh, and it's wow. like it's fantastic. It's sort of. It's it's really like open ended, and it one thing that like all of the Zachtronic games do is they sort of they show you because they're Steam games, so they're online connected, and so they can collect data on how people do on a level, and they can show you like oh you maybe used fewer lines of code, but you used more power than most people do, or mm. maybe your solution was just wildly inefficient, or maybe it was really clever and you beat a lot of people. Yeah, you can sort of see like was this a good solution without the game developer having to come in and define what a good solution is. Sure, sure. So that that's a lot of fun. And also in terms of more social games, I also play a lot of Heroes of the Storm, which is a MOBA. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, Blizzard makes it. It sort of uh, was their... their I, I think what they did was they sort of cleaned up a lot of the MOBA genre stuff. Where yeah. They sort of took stuff that was like, what is more what is what is actually what makes this genre fun as opposed to just what are the things that few previous MOBAs have done and I think that they did a pretty good job with that I mean it's not perfect I'm there's there's a lot of things that are frustrating about that game but it's sort of it's a way honestly partly a way to just hang out with friends from high school who are on the other coast and I don't really get to see other, otherwise so we play a lot of that uh as a way to sort of you know socialize and hang out but that's in terms of soundtracks I mean that's a good question. I'm trying to think, like... I mean, there's the game soundtracks that I really like. Like, uh... Like, DK64, I think, has a great soundtrack. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, like, like... I'm trying to think in terms of... Because it's hard to nail down influences, for me, at least. It's sort of hard to say, like, oh, this is... I wrote this because I listened to this. Sure. It's sort of that... I've never been very good at that, and... Do you have any game soundtracks as a kid, um, maybe growing up with that stuck with you? Like for me, grew up with the Sonic series, so Masato Nakamura on the Sega Genesis, you know, will always have a special place in my heart. Anything <laughs> like that? I mean, a lot of it is the, uh, like Donkey Kong and stuff like that. Like yeah. I've played all the Donkey Kong countries, uh, played the Mega Man X's. I think I was a little too young for the original Mega Man stuff, but like I, my, our first system was a Super Nintendo. Yeah. So played played those sorts of things, and uh, like I said, played all the Donkey Kong countries, went back, played through them again recently, uh, and just, I don't know, that's the... And the, like I said, DK, uh, Donkey Kong stuff is often what tends to stick with me most, and also, obviously, you know, uh, Ocarina of Time. 
It's just partly because the music was such in the forefront of that piece because it was part of the game mechanics that sort of sticks with me more. So, you know, I can still hear things like Surya's song or something like that or the Song of Storms and be like, oh, whoa, that's that's that thing. I know what that is. But like, I mean, when I was when I was younger, I'm not sure that I listened to it enough to really I don't know. That, that's not true. I listen. Like I said, I sort of what am I trying to say? I think, yeah, I think Donkey Kong and Ocarina of Time would probably be the ones that most stand out for me in terms of soundtracks that sort of remind me of my childhood. 